welcome to the Peace Catalyst podcast, where we share stories to inspire, uplift, and encourage you in your peacemaking journey. I'm Becca Teibel, and I'm based um, in the Washington, D.C. area, finally back from South Africa, <laughs> which was an amazing adventure. Woo! But it feels great to be back home <laughs> and working with Peace Catalyst here in Washington, D.C. Um, and as always, joined by my wonderful co-host, Allie Bernison. Hey everyone, I'm Allie, and I have not been in South Africa. I have been in Los Angeles, <laughs> still here. Um, and yeah, we're we're very excited. Becca's back. Um, and <laughs> by the way, if you enjoy the Peace Catalyst podcast please do us a favor and take some time to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, thank you guys for doing that. Um, So we are still in the midst of our series called Becoming the Beloved Community, Restoration and Healing in the Midst of Division. And rooted in the historical origin of the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King Jr., this concept of becoming the beloved community is what is framing our conversations. So we're talking to people whom we would call peace builders who are involving themselves in the ministry of reconciliation, interrupting and challenging oppression, and holding firmly to a vision of justice, restoration, peace, and healing for all members of the community. Yeah, so this week we're interviewing Jed Hendricks, who is one of Martin's friends, and he's also the executive director of Interfaith Paths to Peace in Louisville, Kentucky. Interfaith Paths to Peace is a grassroots community peacemaking organization that serves the community through bringing people of different faiths, races, cultures, traditions, and philosophies together for the purpose of interfaith understanding and social justice based on the principles of peace. So through his work with Interfaith Paths to Peace, Judd creates opportunities for engagement across cultures and faith traditions and other areas of difference, and he values healing communities through building understanding across differences. Can't wait to have this conversation with him. And before we dive in, I wanted to share our peace quote of the week which is a quote by St. Francis of Assisi. It says, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Such a great reflection for us as we consider where we're seeing hatred and ways that we can be sowing love um, as followers of Jesus. Well, Judd, we are excited to be with you right now. Um, just to get us started, could you share a bit about yourself and where you are um, geographically in the States, outside of the States, uh, vocationally, kind of a bit about what you do um, and anything else you want to share about who you are? Sure. Love to. And thank you guys for having me on today. I'm excited about the conversation. I'm currently in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, it's where I live and move and have my being. Um, I was born in Nashville and I've uh, kind of lived in the uh, southeast part of the world um, all of my life. Um, I um, I was originally, a, a, I was ordained a Presbyterian pastor. So that was the first half of my life. I um, grew up in, in the church and uh, became a, a Presbyterian. Presbyterian minister, and um, whereas at a couple of different uh, congregations started a church, um, uh, kind of a intentional community church that had little small groups that um, met in each other's homes, and then I, um, I uh, kind of became an interfaith minister in the midst of all of that. I kind of became a, a Buddhist or a inter spiritual interfaith person. So. I uh, kind of moved out of the ordained Presbyterian role, but I've always been fascinated by um, spiritual community, beloved community, which we're going to talk about, is a, a beautiful model for the way in which I understand um, what I want to participate in and help build in the world. And uh, I've done that in a variety of different uh, contexts. I um, got into uh, in, uh, immigrant and refugee integration work and started a nonprofit called the Global Human Project, 
um, to build relationships with um, diverse populations, um, created a refugee simulation. What would it be like to be a refugee called walk a mile in my shoes? Um, then I worked for the mayor's office. I went back to get a PhD uh, in education and social change. Um, so I'm kind of an entrepreneur, a social entrepreneur. I'm a beloved community entrepreneur. I just try to create um, all these little things um, that I hope uh, bring peace to the world. The last two years, I've been the executive director of Interfaith Paths to Peace, um, which integrates a lot of my interests and connections and have been involved in the peace justice work um, for a long time, just but uh, different containers. And that's the container that I'm in now. So, yeah, that's kind of what I do and who I am and where I came from. Very cool. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Um, it's so great to have you, Judd, and um, love hearing about all these different initiatives that you've started. And um, yeah, wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the work that you all do with Paths for Peace or Paths to Peace. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. And you know, how did it get started, and what's the overall purpose of the organization? Sure. Interfaith Paths of Peace was started about 25 years ago. Um, originally, um, out of some uh, groups that were trying to bring together Louisville's kind of religious diversity at that point, which in Louisville at that point was mainly Protestants, Catholics, Muslims, and Jews, kind of your top five or four major world religions. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of how they started. Um, they did take on a... Um, uh, also kind of a global peace uh, movement, how to not how to bring these kind of religious traditions together in order to create um, peace in the world. And at that point, they did a lot of stuff around um, reducing nuclear proliferation, um, kind of global peace movements, um, anti-war or pro-peace um, initiatives were a lot of the work that they did over the years. That's really expanded to become, uh, we, we still have interfaith in our name, but we really see ourselves as an intersectional movement where we're interested in not just people's ideologies or religious traditions, but all of the different places where we have difference. Um, so we're uh, really interested in bringing diverse people together, whether it's religious tradition or race or class or political ideology. Um, we want to work in those spaces where um, people are, are struggling, um, have diff significant differences, and to help them um, see each other, be in spaces where they can hear each other, understand each other, and then be creative and, and working not only peace between people, um, but uh, inner peace as well. So there's been a significant, and I'll talk more about that in a, in a bit, but so there's kind of this uh, inner work of peacemaking and harmony within ourselves and then the outer work of bringing people together in, in different ways that may be experiencing conflict or um, uh, a lack of peace. So that's kind of the, the organization where it's been. Um, uh, we've been uh, the last couple of years, and I'll talk some more about the where the beloved community came from. But as you all know, Louisville was kind of an epicenter of racial injustice, uh, uh, racial um, justice work um, uh, the last couple of years. And so uh, Interfaith Paths to Peace has really made um, racial equity, um, racial justice, a centerpiece for the work that we've been doing the last couple of years. And I can talk about more of that with the beloved community. But that's basically Interfaith Paths to Peace. Yeah, we have a diverse board. Um, and uh, yeah, that's kind of the work that we've been doing here in Louisville. And would you say awesome. you're um, kind of firmly rooted in your context in the sense that you are responding to, you know, issue areas of division in Louisville specifically, or um, are you, you know, kind of looking at broader sources of, you know, division and um, as you're speaking about like the various contexts you guys are kind of working in um, and how you're becoming more intersectional, Does, is that like 
geographically as well? Or are you kind of focused, you know, on, on your community, would you say? Well, yeah, historically, we've been a little more globally engaged. Uh, I think recently, um, we've realized that those kind of global dynamics are also at play in our our own neighborhoods. And um, so there's probably been a little more focus recently in the last couple of years to our, our local, um, what's happening in Louisville or in, you know, in Kentucky. Um, so, I, you know, it's kind of that um, uh, global awareness with local practice. I think we have a, a, a larger sense of the global issues of peace and unrest conflict. But um, I think the focus of us trying to address those have been more uh, particular to our own context. But I think, you know, those all echo and mirror each other um, from the individual all the way out to the to the local to the to the global context. So I think we try to have a lot of global awareness while also um, local uh, practice. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. So, so with that in mind, um, what, when you hear the phrase beloved community, what comes to mind for you, um, in, in your perspective, you know, kind of speaking with the lens of your organization, um, and if you can kind of share with us how you've gotten to this idea of what beloved community is and does, um, yeah. Yeah, I, um, when you uh, asked me that question, one of the things I did was put that out to our, um, we have this initiative called the Beloved Community Network, and put that out to some of our uh, team that's been pulling that together, again, to try to practice uh, being inclusive and not trying to necessarily um, uh, speak from just my perspective, but hopefully I can uh, honor uh, other perspectives as well in, in answering these questions. Um for me personally, um, the beloved community uh, concept. So this initiative has been about a, a little over a year old, where uh, actually about a year and a half uh, old. In the midst of the 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 racial uh, or the racial work that Louisville was trying to to move through, we brought together an interracial group to say, you know who who do we want to be? And this, this concept of the beloved community became, and I think this is what it is for me. It's a, it's kind of a utopian transcendent image of what I would hope for the world. Um, uh, and it's, I, I use this concept of a, a, a transcendent image. This it's a vision um, that does a couple of things. One is that, it, it's a kind of vision that can critique the reality of what is. So, you know, if we have this sense of um, a vision of a beloved community where everybody has what they need in order to thrive, um, that's mm-hmm. kind of a, a, a phrase that we use. Um, wh- what is it that in our, if we hold that as a, as a vision of what the reality that we all want and, in all of our spiritual traditions, which is really beautiful, there are these images of a beloved community. They may use different words for it, but, you know, out of all of these mythical, uh, historical, religious traditions across cultures, people have had a vision of life together that they're trying to work for. Um, and I, there's this guy... Um, well, we, we, we traced it. We, we also pulled it from um, Dr. Martin Luther King's vision of the beloved community. And that was really a powerful guiding image for the work that he did and definitely had a racial lens on it. He actually got it from um, Howard Thurman. Um, and Howard Thurman had this kind of, uh, he actually brought it into the, to the black church as well. He was a preacher um, that had kind of an interfaith, interspiritual bent to him. Um, but he actually got it from a guy named um, jo, uh, Josiah Royce, who was really a philo- he was a moral philosopher, and he um, started coining this concept of beloved community that he thought was a spiritual reality. 
he thought there was this teleological, which means a, a vision of the future or, or something that pulls us into the future. He actually thought it was a real reality um, that existed just not as a, as a spiritual reality that was calling physical reality to embody it. So it was this really spiritual kind of vision, and, and Howard Thurman picked up on it um, and kind of brought it into the lexicon of the black church, which is where um, I think um, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King got it from. And, and when King brought it in, started using it, he also brought in more of a racial lens to it and an equity lens saying, if we're going to have the beloved community, we've got to look at issues of power. We've got to look at issues of access. We've got to look uh, at some of these deeper structures that keep us from realizing beloved community. And so it really became a guiding image for this group. Um, one, it became kind of a spiritual reality. Sometimes we ask, what would beloved community ask of us right now? You know, almost like it's this force out there that we can we can participate in that will creak that will critique our current reality. It will show us how we're not beloved community. But then it, it gives us resources to say, what would it look like if we lived in to this vision? If I personally lived into this vision? And so, of course, beloved has a, a rich tradition in, in all of our spiritual traditions. Rumi, uh, out of the Muslim tradition, used it a lot um, to talk about um, the love of, of, of God or even the love between two people. Um, Joseph, uh, Josiah Royce um, called it a kind of a moral force. He, he called it a, um, evolutionary love. So he actually believed it was a power of love that was evolving the world. It was basically the energy of evolution, of life, that he called, um, yeah, evolutionary love. And what evolutionary love is doing is creating the beloved community. Mm. Um, so I really love, I mean, those are kind of the images of where I got that from or, or, or kind of the grounding for me. It really is a a vision for what I want to do with my life, what I want to help create. The other way I see beloved community is not necessarily a social issue, but it's also um, an inter issue. And so here I, 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 one of the ways I see this work is that there's a significant inward component to the beloved community in the sense that unless we can experience this kind of wholeness within ourselves, we're always projecting that out into the world. So we've really tried to commit to a, a disciplined, um, integrative path of becoming whole uh, ourselves. And so we really see the echoing of inner work um, what would it be to be beloved community within myself, right? All the diverse mm. parts of myself, my shadow, all of my projections, all of these parts, the voices that I have not listened to, that I've repressed, that I've um, uh, shadowed in my own experience. What if I brought all of those into wholeness? What if in myself I experienced being the beloved, that I could love all of the diverse parts of myself? Because one of the things we realize is if we um, suppress or subjugate or shadow aspects of ourselves, they end up showing up as projections onto other people. And that's often where we experience conflict. We're not able to be in harmony with other people because we're not able to be in harmony with ourselves. And so the insights of our world religious traditions are so powerful around these practices of what does it look like for us to become whole, for us to uh, embody the Christ life like, for us to embody um, Buddha nature, for us to embody, um, you know, the Hindu tradition of some uh, of uh, Nirvana, or in what these images are, it's it's of these images of becoming whole, and then when we experience that, we realize that that we're not separate from other people. You know, we realize that the self, my very existence, is caught up in a web of relationships. 
So my very understanding of self begins to include the other. And then when I realize the other is not whole, when the other doesn't have what they need, when the other is being oppressed, then it's I relate to it as if it's happening to me. And that's where our hearts get bigger and to begin to include more people. And that's, you know, that becomes ultimately the hope that we're going to work for justice and um, uh, equity for all people because we see ourselves caught up in this web of relationships. We see ourselves caught up in the beloved community. Um, and therefore we have this, this otherness that we're concerned about as well, not just ourselves. So those are some of the principles that I think behind beloved community. One of the, when I asked um, some folks, um, I got a, a response of a quote from a, a woman named Ann Braden, who's done a lot of racial work here in Louisville. And the quote says, in every age, no matter how cruel the oppressor by those in the oppression by those in power, there have been those struggling for a different world. And that's the beloved community for um, one of our members. Um, another member uh, of our community um, said that the beloved community was most um, represented by what they would call the moral imagination, um, that there is a way to imagine a different future um, and then creatively move in that. That is the beloved community. That's what the beloved community does. It imagines a different way. And then it empowers everybody to, to help create that um, out of their vision uh, of what they need and what they think others need. Hmm. So those are, I, I know that was a whole lot there, but uh, those were some images that, that come up for me or how the beloved community functions. Yeah, there's so, so much beautiful. there. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, I really appreciate how comprehensive that uh, description was and kind of what all, all of the different ideas and people you're bringing into that conversation um, that you're having within yourself and with, you know, those on staff. With, yeah, so um, just really appreciate that. I mean, I think the thing that strikes me the most, perhaps, or that, you know, I'm my I feel like my mind's kind of looping on is just that super practical question um, that might not have obvious an obvious answer, but the practical question of like, what would beloved community do? Um, and so that it's kind of like this orienting um, for, yeah, as you said, like an orienting force um, kind of propelling us forward in, in decision-making um, and in just simply how we, how we live our lives, how we see, people that we, um, pass every day. Yeah. I just, I, anyway, I think, um, that's definitely going to be something I can, I kind of carry with me from this conversation. So. Yeah. And one of the ways that I think that question is if we were to, and you know, this may be a, uh, kind of a spiritual, I, I do think that's why interfaith paths to peace tries to pull down these spiritual practices because whether we call that force love or, you know, um, mother earth or God or, um, you know, Allah, what these, these historical traditions, when we ask the question, what does beloved community want? We, we tap into a, like a spiritual realities that give us a, a sense of that, you know, and I think it gives us what, what Carl Jung would call a transcendent image uh, in order to, to try to embody. And so it, it becomes a source of inspiration to do the work. And, you know, the work is always kind of different when we ask that question, it matters the context and the um, where we are and who we are. But I think it gives us, some spiritual, if love is this energy, it invites us to tap into it, not just with our, our minds, uh, but with our hearts and with our actions, that they get directed by something that's more than me. Mm. And I think that's, that's what's important, you know, that it becomes mm. more than me, 
more than just my view, my um, sense of it. it. It invites me to listen deeply um, to a different reality, a different force. And it invites me to listen to how that's showing up for other people. And I think that that a lot of the peacemaking work is about listening. Mm-hmm. Um, have we listened well enough, you know, both to the whole and to the particulars in these situations so that some other reality begins to emerge that we can all see, um, that we can collectively see as mm-hmm. what we want to work for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's incredible. And I, you know, I think it's so, um, yeah, it's just beautiful to hear this vision coming from a multi-faith perspective of, of you know, peacemaking and also kind of understanding the beloved community from these different faith um, traditions um, and even non-faith traditions too. Um, yeah. So I guess... Yeah. And, you know, I, I love what you're saying too about the inner sort of piece and how that contributes to the outward piece. I think that is something we don't really hear a lot or talk about a lot, um, but is, is really important. Um, yeah. But I guess, how would you, if you had to kind of put it into concrete terms, how do you think that this sort of peacemaking between people from different faith groups does lead us towards becoming the beloved community um, in the context of what you all do with Paths to Peace? Yeah, well, one of the, some of the practice of that is that, yeah, that's where it gets into how do we set up, so Interfaith Paths to Peace has three, uh, three programmatic kind of initiatives, what we call in, with, and out. Um, so inward practices that cultivate, you know, our capacity within ourselves to experience wholeness. We have what we call uh, with practice, which is events. Like how do we bring people together? What's the processes we use to bring people together? Um, and uh, we use a lot of what we call the art of hosting um, uh, practices. So uh, this is a movement of, around how to bring people together. Uh, a lot to to harvest what we would call collective wisdom, um, spaces where people's different voices can be in the space, where we can see one another. There's um, this concept of beholding the other or being able to to hold the other, the other's perspective in a, a compassionate embrace, not about whether we agree with it, because you know, I, I think that's really important to talk about that. We're not talking about this kind of kumbaya peace, you know, where just everybody gets along. That's just not a reality. And um, that kind of language around peacemaking has in many ways um, marginalized voices for justice, because a lot of times we need, there's going to be confrontation that happens when people, and, and this is the language about peacemaking and justice making that the beloved community spent a lot of time with is that sometimes truth telling needs to happen in the peacemaking process so that we need to point out how po- people have been marginalized, histories of racism, histories of oppression, histories of whiteness. Um, and, and that doesn't always feel good, right? That doesn't feel like peacemaking, but until we have the truth, until the, these realities are seen and beheld, we're not going to have, it's, it's a false harmony. You know, it's a harmony where somebody's not included or it's a harmony um, uh, that has no kind of depth to it, has no structural truth to it. And so what are these practices of hosting people where truth needs to be told? And so we did these things last year called reckoning forums where to move to reconciliation, to move towards peace between groups, there needed to be moments where people's stories were told and where they were heard. And and that's the only way then to move to reconciliation. Uh, first, those things have to happen. 
So we spent, you know, a lot of time last year doing these reckoning forums where different groups of people would would speak about their experience, often of racial injustice or um, racial oppression. Um, but we could say that across the board, right? I mean, you could, you know, talk about ethnic or um, ideological perspectives that feel like they've been marginalized. Um, so the art of hosting gives us some different ways of bring, bringing people together. So we do a lot of those. The other piece that, I've, that I think we have found is I think we embody beloved community the most when we can get people to create something together. Because to be able to create one of the things that we, excuse me, one of the tools we use um, with the beloved community is what's called a um, organizational social network analysis. So, uh, or a, a social network analysis. And what this analysis does, it tells us who's connected to who. For example, we're working on a specific issue right now called um, violence prevention, um, specifically trying to address homicides in Louisville. Um, and, and specifically kind of West Louisville and Black Louisville. Um, Louisville's had a, the last two years a historical high number of homicides. Um, so we've launched a constellation, which is the organizing model that the beloved community uses. Um, so one way we talk about the beloved community network is constellations coming together for creative change. So a constellation is a specific issue that we're trying to address. So we looked at um, youth and young adults or immigrate, immigrants, uh, uh, welcoming immigrants. So that a constellation is formed around an issue. So, for example, um, we're, we're hosting this constellation now on violence prevention. Um, and so we use these methodologies to analyze uh, back to the social network analysis, it analyzes who in the violence prevention work is connected to each other, what their level of trust is, and what resources do they bring for collaboration. So this is like a, a, an analytical tool to look at how are people connected um, and do they trust each other. And what we found is that a lack of trust is the main thing that keeps people from collaborating. So if we're going to be about peacemaking, we have to be about trust building. Mm -hmm. You know, if we're going to collaborate to change things, first we have to look at how have relationships been broken and where is there a lack of trust. And so this, this analysis tool allows us to pinpoint, you know, reasons and um, areas where people don't trust each other. And so organization, uh, large systems change, we've, we're finding that there's a couple of ways in which people don't trust each other. So these will be the areas we try to do peace building around. One is organizations that have a different racial makeup don't trust each other in Louisville. So they're not collaborating and they don't trust each other. And there's some historical reasons why um, race, specifically between black and white communities, um, why they don't trust each other. There's also a lack of trust between organizational types. So like you have your grassroots organizations or you got your social innovators, there's not a lot of connection or trust between them and historical nonprofit organizations. And that's because a lot of the money has flowed to the nonprofits, but it doesn't flow down to the everyday people doing the grassroots work. So we're, we're realizing there's a lack of trust um, because of resources. Um, we also realize that there's a lack of connection between our religious organizations and our nonprofit organizations doing work in the same sector. So like, let's say they're, they're concerned with houselessness, which we did a violence, we did a constellation on houselessness last year, or homelessness. And we found there's a lot of churches involved with homelessness, but they're not connecting to the, the historical nonprofits doing that. So we have a coalition for the houseless in Louisville, or the homeless in Louisville, but they don't have many connections with the religious organizations. So when we're looking at structural change or peacemaking, some of the work that we have to do is building relationships with these different organizations if we're really going to address these significant issues in Louisville. Um, 
I don't know. That kind of went off on a, I, what I'm describing to you now are the tools. Like here is the practice of peacemaking and here are the different mm-hmm. tools that we try to use in order to do, in order to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, thank you for sharing that. Cause I think everything that you've, yeah, just laid out is so important and sort of the more, um, yeah, like really present needs that are in the community and how you all are addressing those is really amazing and just so important. Um, so thank you so much for sharing all of that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I can get into the weeds on some more of those, but yeah, we can, we can see what, what emerges. Mm -hmm. Would you say, yeah, I'm curious about, uh, the, you know, you shared a lot about what you've, what you've learned and how you've kind of adjusted, um, the, the tools and the practices to kind of, yeah, what you're experiencing throughout this process. Um, what have been some significant tangible or maybe like the most significant tangible challenges to what, what you're trying to do, um, with interfaith paths to peace? Yeah, that's a, a good question. Um, Well, I think in the, the work that we've been doing the last two years, um, the I think trying to look at some of the structural or the systemic issues that continue to divide us and continue to create conflict um, And are we aware of kind of these deeper systemic dynamics? Um, so, for example, in Louisville, um, yeah, the, the conflict that's happening around race, um, that there there's a lack of... Well, you know, I, I'll, I'll just try to name it. I think one of the one of the issues is is what we've started terming uh, whiteness um, or we call it white supremacy um, and the the lack of awareness on how white whiteness and I, I when I say whiteness I'm not talking about white people I'm talking about structures and systems and cultures of whiteness um, and I think that's an important distinction. So what we're talking about are these norm normative structures that get created by whiteness. Um, and I'm not necessarily talking about white people, although white people benefit and, and propagate them. So I, I think there's a lack of awareness around the historical and the structural implications of whiteness and power that that are continue to lead to in Louisville, there's, was this process of redlining, for example, which is uh, certain areas of Louisville that were black, um, did not get certain loans, or, uh, we saw how there was a disinvestment his like, um, by government, by banks, by uh, the structures, the cultural structures and powers. And that, that has repercussions today around why we're not experiencing harmony between our... So I think one of the things we've bumped into is our lack of historical and structural knowledge of power. And so we have to go back and bring awareness to that into the current conversations. Um, And I, I think that has been one of the things we've bumped into is is a lack of consciousness. It's a lack of awareness that you don't really realize you're dealing with until you get into the nitty gritty of why we're not, why we don't have peace. Um, but once you get into it, you realize, wow, this is, it's a lot bigger than what we thought. And we have to do more kind of structural or foundational work. Um, even before we can get to the place where we're going to have a real conversation about reconciliation, even to just get to create that table um, there's a lot of work that has to happen before we can even 
try to invite people to show up to have a reconciliation conversation. Um, mm. So I think that's been some of the, what we've bumped into is that we always have to be aware of these historical or structural dynamics, um, which are more difficult for us to engage. You know, they're, they're, um, they're more foundational for us to engage. Yeah. I, I mean, what strikes me in that is this, this kind of work, the rec, the community reconciliation work is necessary on, or has to be, we, you have to come at it from so many different levels of society, you know, interpersonal, we're talking about building of trust, um, and then structural, cultural. And I mean, I, I mean, it, what I'm hearing from that is that you can't tangibly, or you can't realistically do it alone, do it by yourself. You know, you need to have those partners in the community who you are collaborating with. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, would you say that's, that's kind of been true to your experience or would you, I mean, yeah. How, how does your organization do it all? Yeah, exactly. Well, I think it's that, um, you know, so the, we talk a lot about what we call the, the doobie do challenge. Like how much are we focusing on process, the way in which we're with each other and then focus on what we're going to do with each other. So there's always this balance between tending to the interpersonal relationships and we've created a, some processes that I think help us and trust with each other that help us name when we feel like um, these dynamics that work against um, peacemaking happen, like when power is used in an inappropriate way, when a voice is not being heard, um, when assumptions are being made when projection is happening. So we spend a lot of time talking about process, the way we're going to be together um, as much as we do about, you know, what we're producing or, or the things that we're hosting or, you know, what, what we're trying to do. So those are all part of the peacemaking challenge is the way we're with each other um, and then what we're doing. Um, so, yeah. And I, you know, we've, We've learned a lot about how do we center marginalized voices, um, you know, how, um, what kind of processes do we have in place to, to make sure power is being shared, um, you know, voices are being heard. Uh, so those are all, yeah, those are all part of the, the difficulty and the challenges that we face anytime we get diverse groups together. And, and I think a lot of it, it has to do with power, you know, that we have to, we have to talk about power, um, continually talk about power. And we have to give our lens, ourselves lenses to know when that's showing up in an unhelpful way. Thinking about power. I mean, I imagine and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I'm imagine I'm imagining that you have perhaps had some difficulties with the the powerful group in your community and i'm sure that depends on context and what you know what particular issue you're engaging in but i mean is it how do you kind of grasp or catch the imagination of those who are in power to want to pursue this vision of beloved community like is it is it possible because as you were just saying, you know, it requires listening and uh, lifting up the voices of the historically oppressed and marginalized. And for those in power, I mean, I, I think many times giving, I don't know, giving up power, I, I don't know how you would articulate that, but so it, it might not appeal. Um, so I don't know. What are your yeah. thoughts on that? Is that something you've experienced or? Yeah. And that's, um, this is where we use a, uh, some theory called um, um, spiral dynamics, or it's a if it's a way of looking at what we would call worldviews, or another ways they talk about a value ranking or value memes. So it, it's a, a lens that we use quite a bit because if you're going to invite people into this work, 
you have to use a value set that they hold. Um, so it's not to say, oh, well, you know, this is right or this is wrong. The question is that we often use is um, everybody's right. The question is how. Hmm. And, and what that does to us is it says everybody's got a perspective. Every group has a perspective. Every person has a perspective. The question is, what is that perspective and where does it come from? Um, and so if we're going to interpret peacemaking or bring people to a table, um, we have to use a value reason why they want to do that. Um, and that's where you have to you know, be really sensitive to. Um, and this is like mediation kind of work. So, you know, in the sense of we have to realize that everybody's going to come to the table or the conversation with certain needs. Um, and and those need to be you know, present and we need to be able to talk about them. We need to help make those, um, those needs that may not be, um, may be held secretly. They need to be overt, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's, and, and it, that's where it's not between what's right or wrong. It's just, yeah, we realize everybody comes to the table with certain needs. Right. Um, and those need to be, you know, expressed and, and spoken. And, um, yeah, so you know, why would um, why would certain people who have power want to come to a conversation where they realize that they're going to have to, you know, share power um, right. and not be threatened by that? Well, that goes back to the inner work, you know, right? If other people um, haven't done their inner work, they're likely to project on other people, or they're likely to not care. So how do you how do you create caring people? That's the deeper conversations yeah. around what's the inner work, you know. And if they don't feel like they're connected, one of the things we often talk about, you know, in Louisville is that we try to help people see that they are interconnected to other Louisvillians. So the idea that they're going to be whole and happy and their neighbor is not whole and happy is just a myth. Hmm. And so how do we break down that they? they don't see themselves in a web of interconnected relationships. Um, so how do you give people the, the experiences where they feel that? Um, and a lot of times that's inviting people not to show up with their ideology or with their agenda, but just show up willing to encounter another person, you know? So that's why we host like the Thanksgiving dinners. We, we did this thing called the big table helped with the big table. It's the world's largest potluck. So we invite everybody to come together in a park and have a day where they, um, they just bring a dish and they meet people they don't know. And they sit at tables of eight and they bring food and they just hear each other's stories. So like, that's the background work, you know, so you, you have to do those, those events as well. Um, and last three years ago, we had uh, 2000 people show up. Uh, to oh have a potluck God. dinner. Yeah, we have North America's largest potluck record. Um, and But see, that's a foundational piece, right? So we're not coming to talk about issues. We're just coming together to hear each other. And you bring a dish, right? You bring a dish that represents your, your heritage, your culture, your family. Right. And then you meet people you know. We, uh, we have these conversation cards called the Louisville Conversation Cards that we use and you just pick a card and you answer that question at a table of eight people. So it's a two hour event where you just get to know people you don't know. Hmm. So it's those kinds of, yeah, practices as, as well that create a sense of knowing um, that breaks down, you know, projection breaks, breaks down stereotypes, assumptions. Sure. Sure. Yeah. The, I think, it's a hard sell here in our, in our culture that generally is, you know, individualistic, um, that we are all interconnected. I think about my own community and issues I'm involved in here, um, housing and homelessness and, you know, just the significant as yeah, same with, I'm sure Louisville, just the significant socioeconomic divide that's so prevalent here and just the rising, cost of housing and um, anyways. Yeah. And I think about those who don't 
don't necessarily have to be engaged in these issues because they the issues don't touch them or at least that's that's what that's maybe perhaps what some think um well i can afford my apartment i'm not you know rent burdened so why why would i care about advocating for affordable housing but i think you're right if if we can all kind of catch this vision of what happens to one of us happens to all of us in some sense, you know, we're all part of the same community. Um, That's such a powerful truth to be, to be living in. Um, And I think Allie, that question that you just asked, how do we help people catch a vision of beloved community of, of our interconnected reality? Um, That's a great, I don't have an answer to that one. I just think it's a great question for us to sit with. How do we help people f- feel, experience the interconnected nature of, of our communities? Um, right. I, yeah, I think that's a beautiful question that I just want to harvest that you said. I think that's that's a lot of the work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do we help them not just grasp it, but be grasped by it? Right. Right. To be grasped by that vision, that transcendent vision. Um, Yeah. So thank you for yeah naming that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's been a great conversation. So I would love to end it and then anything that you want to add, but I'd love to end with, you know, where, where are you seeing, we've already, you know, we've talked a bit about this, but if you could just state again, um, where are you seeing the needle being moved in your own community towards beloved community? Yeah, that's a, there's been so much good work done specifically by our black community this last couple of years of just their courage to, to speak truth. Um, uh, even when that wanted to continue to be oppressed that I, I think Louisville's in a different place now that there are more people asking better questions around structure um, that I think in the long run are going to lead to, you know, the possibilities of reconciliation. Um, that's still a lot of work still needs to be done in that space. But um, I'm just so thankful for the courage of those, um, you know, marginalized folks um, that have just taken it upon themselves to speak truth and to live that out and, to continue to bring that awareness and that, that awareness um, is paying off and people asking different questions. Um, And I think people, um, we often talk about form follows consciousness. Mm. Um, And so this consciousness raising that's been happening will create um, different forms, you know, and that's where the structures do have to change in order for us to move into beloved community. Um, so I, that's, that's the work that we're going to continue on, you know, truth telling, asking integrative questions, bringing people together to, to hear and see each other. Um, and then to, to creatively collaborate where we can, again, anytime we can get folks to collaborate, to create something, uh, that, that shows that peacemaking is happening. Um, so yeah, it feels like that's the work. And I, you know, I'm so thankful for all the work that Peace Catalyst does, the, your vision, your work. Um, I'm, I'm just a huge fan of, um, I think you guys are, are on, on the right track and leading the way in a lot of that work. So thank you for, for the work that you all are doing. Well, thank you. Yeah. It sounds like our kind of where we're headed is same destination, you know? So yeah, I love it. I love that you get to partner with Martin on some things and yeah, yeah. that's been fabulous. All right. Well, thanks so much, Judd. Thank you all. Yeah. Good to really good to be with y'all and appreciate the conversation. Let it, let it continue. So what do you think of that conversation, Becca? It was, yeah, I, I loved talking to Judd and hearing everything that he's been part of and how Beloved Community hits his work and 
his organization and his community. Um, yeah, I just, I thought what he was sharing about beloved community. And this is something that's come up before in previous conversations, but the concept that beloved community is not something foreign to other faith traditions and philosophies, worldviews, but that it's actually something that is very human and it's at the core of all of us. And it's this deep longing for, um, yeah, it's this deep longing for a just peaceful vision of society for all, not just ourselves or our tribe or our group, but for all of humanity. Um, so that's, yeah, that's definitely something that we we've said before in this series, but that Judd reiterated as he was unpacking what beloved community is to him and is to interfaith paths to peace. Yeah. I think it's something that's so important because if we, yeah, I think if we believe that like every human being really is an image bearer of God, then it would make sense that this kind of, that the beloved community would be fitting for all people groups and all religious groups and all, right. um, yeah, like different diverse groups of people. And I think it's, yeah, beloved community is for everyone. And we don't like want to like prevent others from becoming a part of that beloved community. Um, if we kind of hold it tightly as something that is claimed by like one group of people or, yeah, I think, um, that's really, yeah, it's opening my mind to think about how we view beloved community in the context of people who belong to um, different faith groups, which is really cool. Absolutely. And I think this is something that I have observed so much in this month. We, we were just talking before we pressed the record button about how we find ourselves right now in the month of Ramadan and it's been Easter and Passover. And so I've had the, the privilege and opportunity to attend a few iftars and the conversations I find myself in with um, various people from, from different cultures and of different nationalities. And, um, you know, when, when we begin talking about what's broken in a community and the thing that, that I'm, I find myself talking about a lot is the housing injustice and the homelessness that is, is plaguing LA. And I mean, so many communities across the country and there are so many layers to that conversation and it's so incredibly nuanced, but I think at the heart of it, as I, as I found myself in conversations about, you know, just the, the depth of brokenness within systems and within just what is happening and the injustice that's playing out in societies. Like this isn't something it's, it's a unifying conversation. Like we can all get behind in, we can all get behind justice. And I was going to say we can all get behind injustice, but what I'm trying to say is it, you know, whether Muslim, Jew, Christian, um, somebody of no faith. I, I mean, yeah, I think at least in conversations I've had, it's, it's been very meaningful to be outraged by the same things and to feel this urge to hold systems or institutions or whatever it is accountable for what, what has been happening. And so mm. just this concept of fighting together, like why, yeah, why are we insistent on fighting alone, you know, because, um, yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's something that hits to the core of each of us. So that's so beautiful. Yeah. I feel like that's such a beautiful picture of collaborating for the the flourishing of a community because it's like you saying like you're saying it's affecting like everybody in that community in some way or another even if it's just causing that sense of like um yeah like sadness or anger or frustration at that issue 
And um, yeah, I think that's kind of, yeah, what we're about at Peace Catalyst too, is to understand and connect and collaborate with those who are different from us in order to work towards the shalom of our communities. So um, I think that's such a great practical example of how we can, yeah, build that beloved community from diverse faith groups, but like all sharing that common concern for um, housing justice. And, and I'm sure that goes for lots of other issues too, affecting our communities. Yeah, and I was kind of, um, yeah, I was reflecting on, because you mentioned Ramadan and sort of like um, having those chances to come together with um, people from another faith group and different from your own. And um, when I was in South Africa, I had the opportunity to visit a um, local mosque, thanks to my good friend, Sadia, who invited us to join her um, Mm -hmm. for a Taravi prayer service, which is the nightly um, Quran reading and prayer service that takes place during Ramadan. And the goal of the um, services is to actually read through all of the Quran um, together as a community. And I remember um, Sadia was kind of like, you know, you could just like sit off to the side, like you don't have to participate in the actual prayers. But I thought like, actually, I would love to be able to participate and learn from her and like from others about what these prayer motions mean. And, um, you know, from, from in her experience, like what is the purpose of these movements and all these things. So um, I had the chance to actually pray alongside her and it was so cool. Cause I think, um, you know, we can sometimes feel like that is an unsafe um, space to go into as in like, yeah. if I, yeah, like if I belong to a particular faith group where I practice a certain faith that I can't go into a different um, faith group's place of worship in a way that's like authentic and genuine. But I think it just, it helped me to see that. Um, yeah. Just because I'm like visiting a mosque or visiting a Jewish temple or visiting any kind of um, faith group space that's different from my own, it doesn't like, it doesn't diminish my faith. It actually can contribute to my faith growing. And also kind of, yeah, it creates that space of welcoming and um, inclusion and hospitality that really can help us to foster that, um, yeah, that beloved community in the sense of, not um yeah not being afraid of of those who are different from us but also not being afraid of of being different um if that makes sense so I think yeah it's just it was a beautiful example and I thought like what would it look like to welcome like a Jewish friend or a Buddhist friend or Muslim friend into like my place of worship and and not to have expectations of like conversion or becoming just like me but actually just walking into those spaces together as, um, yeah, as mutual human beings, (laughs) if that makes sense. So yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. Um, so I hope that we can all sort of, yeah, be willing to walk in those spaces that maybe seem a little scary or, um, even awkward at first, but, (laughs) um, yeah, for, Anyway, that's what Judd made me think of um, in our conversation about, yeah, multi-faith. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. yeah that's, um, uh, that, I, I love the connections that you're making between fear and, you know, like what, what would hold someone back? Where does the hesitation come from? And I think you're right. This at the root of it is fear and this urge to protect that, you know, if I'm going to a mosque and I'm even participating in some of the motions of prayer, I'm giving up something. And so this need to have to build walls around our own belief system, that's, it really is limiting. And so I just, yeah, I appreciate you sharing your openness and, um, 
your confidence in your own, in your own faith and also in the friendship of, um, the people that you were with, you know, to feel safe enough to, um, participate in a way that you felt comfortable. And yeah, I think, uh, it's, it's definitely encouraging and also challenging of how can we create in from whatever, if whatever faith tradition or, or not that we're part of, how can we create similar spaces of hospitality that are welcoming and non-threatening and again, yeah, without expectation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah. And I think that can look so many different ways. Like you're saying, creating a space of welcoming and um, community, it doesn't have to be like a place of worship or a faith community. Like it could be, mm-hmm someone's home or yeah but creating that space um yeah for people to like um interact with those who are different from them and and not feel like um threatened or unwelcomed or something and I hope I hope that like we as Christians or as followers of Jesus could also yeah create that welcoming space like um yeah in a way that's that's non-threatening and also um, yeah, like you're saying, welcoming and, and hospitable. Um, and what, what could that look like for us, um, who do, um, yeah, profess the faith, um, in Jesus or Christianity? It's a great question to end on, I feel like, because that at its core is building this vision of beloved community, isn't it? Yeah. So good conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. And for more info about Peace Catalyst and to help support our peacebuilding work, please visit our website at peacecatalyst.org. Thanks, everyone. Bye.